0: Hi and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off podcast. We are Katie and Beth, PAs and doctors of medical science who are here to help you get accepted into PA school, get through PA school, and then have a thriving career as a PA. So if you're a pre-PA, a PA student, or a physician assistant, then you are in the right place. We are so happy you are here and so excited for your future. Before we get started on today's exciting episode, We want you to take a deep breath, close your eyes, and imagine the day when you finally and confidently submit your CASPA application, an application that you are super proud of and that sets you apart from the thousands of other applicants. Then imagine the day you open your inbox and you see not one but two, then three invites to some of your favorite PA programs. Then imagine your interview day. You go into your interview confident in your answers and confident that you are a competitive candidate. You crush your interview and wow your interview panel, Finally, imagine the day you received the email, the one you have hustled for so hard and for so many years, the email that says, congratulations, you were accepted into PA school. This can be your reality, and our entire mission is to help you get accepted to PA school as quickly and painlessly as possible. Through our years of working at PA programs, reviewing CASPA apps, and interviewing candidates, we saw so many applicants make mistakes that cost them an interview or acceptance into PA school. We don't want this to be you. We will mentor you and guide you through the overwhelm of applying to PA school, creating a competitive application, and nailing your interview so you can finally get accepted. We show you exactly how in our Application to Acceptance course. Check it out in the show notes, and we are so excited to meet you and connect with you. Where will you be in one year if you don't take action? Don't waste your time and money reapplying. Charge forward and go all in on your dream of becoming a PA. You are so close. Don't stop now. Let's get you accepted. Again, check out the application to acceptance force in the show notes. Now on to today's episode. Help us give a warm welcome to Mark Lyons, an advocate for medically underserved patients and author of several books. Welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. <laughs>
1: So much for being on our
0: podcast today. We really, really appreciate it. We're so excited to interview you and, and get to know a little bit more about you and that your passion for the medically underserved. Um, so, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and why you decided to become a
1: PA.
2: Well, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated from college. I thought about medical school, and it became clear to me that that was a rat rat I was not going to be able to take. And sort of serendipitously on the week of graduation when I had no idea what I was going to do with my life, uh, I walked by a table. I went to Berkeley there in Sproul Plaza and there was somebody um, asking people to sign up for Vista. This was in 1965. So Vista was a volunteer in service to America. They still exist. They're sort of part of AmeriCorps. All that thing now but it was sort of touted as the as the domestic peace corps and uh i said i completely lied and i said i have a job starting in a week so if you want me to go into vista you have to contact me in a week so i was counting the days and six days later they said you want to go to you want to go into vista so after VISTA training, I went, um, it was in, you know, 65, it was the summer of 65, it was a lot of civil rights stuff going on, in especially, well, all over, but in the South, and I
1: asked to go to, uh, there was an opening in Georgia, so I asked to go to Atlanta, and that was
2: at a time, and it just, at, at the time, and it's different now from AmeriCorps and VISTA now, but at the time, sort of the the expectation is that you would live in the community you worked in. And so I lived. I was the only white guy living in a black community called Buttermilk Bottom in Atlanta, Georgia. And that year really was sort of life-changing, you know, in terms of being exposed to the realities of racism and and getting involved in the civil rights movement and and uh, and the anti-war movement because the whole stuff about Vietnam was really heating up then. I actually thought about going into public health school or social work school, Uh, but I still wasn't clear, and then I had, well, it wasn't a detour because it was a really part of my development. I ended up going working full-time in New York City for the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers, Uh, and I was the head of the draft program, and it ended up refusing induction and getting arrested and all that stuff that a lot of people were doing at that time, but each of those steps was me trying to figure out what was important to me in terms of how I would live my life uh, in a way that would match my professed values, you know. So and making those kind of choices uh, and being really careful about that, I mean, being conscious about whatever I was doing, I wasn't making choices, was really important. And then I ended up in Philadelphia, and um, then I heard about the PA program, and that sort of made me really think, I mean, part of when I was working in the South, I was, you know, trying to figure out what is a legitimate role for a white guy to be involved in minority communities, because clearly that role isn't to be an organizer or to be a leader. You know, so what is the, you know, how... What kind of skills can I bring that community that will really allow me to be connected to people and do something that was useful and needed? And that's when when I heard about the PA, I said, Oh, this is this is what I really want to do. So you know, it took a couple years to because I you know I needed to take some
1: courses and I needed to have more I needed to have medical experience, all that kind of stuff, uh,
2: and did that. You know, and then, uh, well, I went to Stony Brook um, uh, and ended up working for a short amount of time at an HMO here in Philadelphia. When I came back, I had roots in Philly and I wanted to stay here. Um, and that was at a time when HMOs really had sort of the vision was a, a, creating a model of uh, provider-focused Healthcare, where the provider sort of was the gatekeeper and the coordinator of the, of, you know, it was sort of, in, and that vision is in some HMOs, but it's, you know, so that was a really exciting vision to me. And the HMO I worked in, I was the first PA there, really allowed me to explore that vision. And then I started doing some adjunct teaching at Hanuman in a nurse practitioner program here and decided
1: I wanted to teach. So I started teaching at Hahnemann, and there you could
2: spend up to 30% of your time doing clinical stuff. It was really encouraged. And I started working in a Hispanic community. I spoke some Spanish and really wanted, and really taught myself much more. And also there was an organization that I was one of the founding members of here called the Philadelphia Project in Occupational Safety and Health, Filipash. And the reason I wanted uh, to be involved with them. And again, um, it was a way for me to use my professional skills working with unions around health and safety stuff. OSHA had just started, and you know there was a lot of energy around that and a lot of uh, discussion about occupational health and safety. So I,
1: on the side, did a lot of training in, with unions uh, around health
2: and safety issues, as well as taught at home and worked in a in a Hispanic clinic here in Philly. During that time, a friend of mine and I organized an organization called CRICA, Committee for Health Rights in Central America. This was at the time when uh, in in Nicaragua there was a a revolution that overthrew this horrible government run by Somoza, and there was a huge amount of vision about health care and education going on I and mean, it's really that's been lost it's awful now but there was a lot of vision and i worked with uh we identified a clinic through there through the government and formed an organization here to ship down medicines and medical equipment and we went down there and did i did health and safety training down there and, and we formed a am thinking of the english a sister clinic with the first clinic that had been destroyed by the Contras. So these were sort of ways I was learning to use my skills. Uh, And also I loved teaching. I mean, one of the things I was trying to decide in New York was, and I wasn't thinking about medicine at that time, was realizing I really loved to teach. And I was thinking of teaching younger kids. And actually before I became a PA, I taught for three years in a, what was called a school without walls. It was sort of a progressive school here for kids from all over the city here in Philly. So I loved that teaching, um, but realized I need more skills. So was I going to go get a teaching certificate or, and then the PA thing came along. Um, so I taught for eight or nine years and worked in the clinic at, at, but was in Hahnemann and then decided I really wanted to learn more about policy uh, and organizing healthcare in a way and not just being a health provider. And that's why I went to public health school at Johns Hopkins.
0: Your background is incredible and super interesting. And, you know, obviously your, your passion for the underserved populations is evident. Um, so we know that you have, you are author of three books Were all of these life experiences that you have, did those all culminate to, to inspire you to write those books or what inspired Mm -hmm. you to write the books that you wrote?
2: So anyway, what happened is uh, the best thing in my life is I got fired from a job at a community health center because I, I mean, it was really true because I'd been the director had been there forever was uh, announced she was leaving and she was the founder of this community health center and people were really anxious about it until they had a whole meeting with this and I said you know I think one way that I think would alleviate the anxiety of a lot of people is if you had people from all departments, including MAs and lab techs and PAs and doctors and nurses, everybody be involved in the process of interviewing and making the decision about this person. Well, they really didn't like that at all. And they called me in and you know, insisted I admit I made a mistake. And, and in fact, I was tweaking them. I sort of knew what I was doing because I knew they were very conservative and protective of their roles. So they phased out my position. And because of the work I did in Nicaragua, they're the cent- the center of the American Friends Service Committee and their cent- their national offices are in Philadelphia, and they do all this stuff around border stuff and international stuff and community organizing around all sorts of community housing and all that kind of stuff. They're really quite remarkable, remarkable organization. And they were the people we worked with to ship the medicines and equipment down to Nicaragua. So just out of that, I was invited to be on an advisory committee around Central and South America. And when I got fired, the person who ran that said, well, we want to hold a conference of community health workers from Nicaragua. Uh, and I think it was Ecuador, who we've trained. We want to hold a conference up here and we'd like you to organize a conference. And I said I would do it, but I would really like to find grassroots organizations who work in the Hispanic community here, around here, who could learn a lot from these people. And I learned a lot from them because when I was in Nicaragua, I really spent a lot of time learning about their health campaigns and training community health workers. And it was, at that time, it was a a remarkable vision, which unfortunately has been lost. But so I got, I organized this conference and one of the groups that was coming up was this group from Nicaragua that was doing all sorts of pesticide training with farmers and so I started looking around and found a grassroots farm worker organization in New Jersey that was doing stuff with farm workers. And I called up the director and invited them. And they came, uh, some other people. I, there was a theater in New Jersey, the community theater, Latino theater, and I, but they did the major sort of theater thing you know and then the person from this organization which is called Kata, the committee for health and the committee the farm workers assistance committee this was in new jersey they just got a state grant to do aids education this was in 87 so this was really early when there was really no treatment. So they hired me to be an AIDS educator. But because I'd written grants
1: and stuff like that, I became the grant writer. And then they
2: decided to apply for a Kellogg Foundation, a big grant, with a consortium of some farmworker grassroots organizations in Texas and Florida and North Carolina and Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic to form a um, what we ended up calling the farmworker health and safety institute and then they asked me because of my experience working and doing health and safety stuff to be the director which i felt a little weird about because i've always felt the role of white guys in these organizations is not that kind of leadership you know so for for nine years i uh our model was to train farm workers basically as community health workers in in all these organizations we did these three
1: day long trainings with follow-ups of training them around health and safety especially pesticides and falls
2: and housing uh, and field sanitation those kind of things but also basically but part of that training was how to advocate for your rights when you were and it was a time when I mean farm workers still don't have all those rights but so we did a lot of organizing and I had this very rich experience going to the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and South Texas and Wisconsin and training people you know to advocate for themselves and be trained the model was to train the trainers and we used a lot of the model of Paulo Freire. Paulo Freire was this amazing Brazilian who developed this model of
1: education which basically was a process of Listening to people in the community, he would go to bars and he
2: would sit on stoops of houses and and find out what their perception of the problem was, and then teach them a whole process of analyzing what those problems were. It was sort of the opposite of the didactic way. You go in and say, oh, you've got pesticide. You know, you work with pesticides. Boom, boom, boom. Here are the things you need to do. Here are the dangers. Here's how you protect, yourself. you protect yourself. Sort of the model filling up the, the empty vessel model of education as opposed to that the information is already in the vessel. So it's, you know, it's a very exciting model that certainly in teaching farm workers who grew up in very, almost well they were almost well they were at that point all hispanic you know and what schooling they had was the teacher lectured at them and they so it was it made them very anxious to be put in this role where you your role was to get the information and the analysis and the solution defining from the people themselves not give them those answers you know but it was it was amazing and i hooked up with some amazing people including somebody from chile who had worked with Paolo Freire and was arrested after Allende was overthrown in 73 and was in prison. And, and he did theater stuff and did all this amazing stuff. And he taught me a lot about using theater. So we used role playing and theater and all that kind of stuff, music to teach about pesticides and, and that kind of stuff. So that, in, obviously in that process, I met a lot of farm workers. And, you know, as, as a PA, one of your skills that is hammered into you is how to get people's stories you know and how not just to s- stick to a script of signs and symptoms and all that stuff but really try to find out about the person's life and how that's impacting on their health and even if it's not it's, it's building a relationship with them you know how by getting them to share their stories you develop a in this case a therapeutic relationship but it's much more profound if when you have the time to do that so after that i left the organization and went to work for a community health center in in Philadelphia, that 95% of our patients were Latin, Latino. And I had two jobs. When I studied public health, one of the things I really was looking at is how to evaluate quality of care in community settings. So I became the director of performance improvement and quality assurance and saw patients like half time. And at that time i read uh, there's a grant making foundation here in philadelphia that funds grassroots organizations that was gave some seed money to an organization that was sort of funneled through temple university to do oral histories of farm workers in kennett square kennett square is about 50 miles outside of philly they call themselves the mushroom capital of the world and so they it's a it's very horsey country very fancy country, beautiful rolling hills with these mushroom barns that are completely staffed by, at that time, almost entirely undocumented Mexican workers. You know, so the, the difference between culture and education and assumptions, you know. So I, I went to them and I said, God, I would love to do this. And they told me, you know, God, we're about to give the money back because the person who was going to do it kept telling us he was going to do it. He was doing it, and didn't do a thing. And so I ended up just, again, by chance having the opportunity to uh, do the stories of these migrant farm workers and their families and their kids who were all part of this mushroom worker community in Kennet Square and that was my first book called Espejos y Ventanas Windows and Mirrors and that book that book was bilingual and I used the same process of interviewing and getting people's stories that that I used when I was doing popular education is what Paulo Freire's work was called. So I met, yeah, through a, a somebody I knew who, doing work out there when I worked with Kata. He introduced me to people and I spent a lot of time explaining why, again, you know, what's this white guy going to do with our stories? And so I had to convince them that they would have complete, you know, like you just said to me, anything, you can say what you want. We met as a group and then I did individual ones and then I found this amazing mural, Mexican mural artist who lives in Philly, and he was going to make the cover. So we had these dinners with these 20 people, you know, and they talked about what they wanted to be on the cover, and he took back drawings. It was it was so much fun. And the youngest person was six, and the oldest one was 80. Um, and they were just remarkable stories. And then what I did, I, what I assumed I would do, is I would give them a draft, a close to finish draft to read and we would go over it and they would talk about what they wanted to take out, what they wanted to add. And when I did that, it was clear these folks aren't readers i mean some of them are literate but what they do when they get off work is they don't sit down and read something you know they watch a movie they listen to music they hang with friends or whatever so i ended up reading the stories to them literally sentence by sentence and you know and then we would take a paragraph and i'd say is anything is that okay anything you want to change so that was a whole nother level of an experience sitting I and mean, we'd go to a park or someplace you know it was just for me i just felt like i was in heaven you know and so that that book was published quite a while ago, and, and like with the other book, if I can talk about it if you want to, which I'm more excited about in some ways. I found a niche in colleges and high schools and teacher training programs. There was a program out of Kansas run by this amazing Latino woman where they were teaching teachers to work in immigrant communities.
1: And she, I met with her, and she loved the book. And bought like
2: 2,000 copies, and had me come train people to do to teach their students to do oral histories of, of migrants, uh, and that that was wonderful. So that that book found a real niche in, in schools, which was really
0: lucky, you know. So and so that's that's it. That. All came out of my experience. Working with farm workers, right, you know, and migrants, you yeah. know, that's, uh, yes. it changed my life, changed my life. It is so incredible because everybody, like Beth and I talk all the time, everybody has a story, everybody has a story, everybody. everybody's story. Is remarkable, no matter who they are, where they are, where they grew up, or what their background is. Yeah. Everyone's story is
1: remarkable.
2: And most marginalized people, A, don't think they have a story that's a remarkable story, and certainly don't think that anybody wants to hear it. So, out of that, somebody who's working with a grassroots community, he's a Guatemalan guy in North Philly in the Latino community, we connected through a mutual, There was actually somebody who was sort of The funder for that book hooked this up, and he asked me to come do a presentation for this group that met ten or fifteen people that met once a week. He was in the process trying to train them to be organizers, and I said when we talked about how to do it, I said I really wanted to create a time there for them to tell their story. I would give you know some a basic piece of it. I'd give them a prompt that they would all answer, and that just what was going to be an hour meeting ended up being three hours because when you get people going, you know, it's, it was, it was marvelous. And out of that, he and I formed something called the Philadelphia storytelling project where, and he had to drop out because he had to get another job and he had a family. But basically I have continued to do a lot of work, both with immigrants. And I did a series of stories with, this was when DACA first came out in 2012 with DACA People were applying for DACA kids, you know, telling their stories. And we actually made a video out of that and done a lot of stuff in schools with kids teaching them how to tell their story and record their story and mix it with photographs and all. Not, most of those kids were Latino, but not all of them. And they weren't focused so much on their immigrant experience. Uh, a lot of these kids were second generation. They, those stories were mostly the model was talking about challenges in their lives. And those became amazing, amazing story where these kids opened up about stuff they said they never told anybody about, including their friends, you know. So, the, so i continue to do that, have worked for the last four years with somebody out in Kennett Square, a teacher who originally got a hold of the, the book I wrote 14 years ago about people in that community, and she uses that book in her ESL class. And she heard about it, and the kids said, "Oh, could we meet the author? So she invited me out to talk about the book. But I said, again, only if we can do a mini storytelling thing, where they, I give them a prompt and they, they tell their stories. You know, They wanted to interview the author, and we did a little bit of that, but then I turned it around on them. And one of the kids, she, he was in 10th grade, comes up to me with the book, and he opens it up to a page with an old man and a 3-year-old. And he points at the 3-year-old. I'm going to cry. <laughs> he points at the 3-year-old, and he says, that's me. And I remember I was interviewing his grandmom and grandpa, and he was over there one day, and I took a picture of them together, and that was in the book. And so so she, used, she still uses that book. But then, so I also, because of the storytelling stuff, there's an organization called La Parta Abierta, the open door here in Philly, that works with undocumented kids were caught at the border, put in detention, go through the whole process of trying to get uh, a kind of asylum status. And I did a storytelling thing where these kids made these remarkable five-minute stories and mixed them with music. They They took off. It was amazing. And this young woman joined them sort of at the end and said, I want to tell my story. So, but she said, I want to sing it. So the director who set up a thing for us to go to a music school. Which is, it's just I play piano. Well, her piano was three chords that a friend had taught her back in Guatemala. But you know, she made up a, a tune, and so we took her and she we recorded her story. You know, and uh, he, and then I was also I had been involved in a lot of grassroots immigrant rights organizations who were working, you know, they were Latin organizations working around immigrant rights, obviously, and was doing storytelling with them as well. And I'm at one of those meetings, this young girl who then was 15, uh, and I didn't recognize her at first. It was the girl who came in and had sung her song two years ago and said, I want i want to write my book. Will you help me? And I said, well, we got to talk. Here. <laughs> I mean, what 14-year-old is going to stick with writing a book? So I met with her three or four times to make it clear what this would entail and that part of it besides sticking with it would be taking risks and talking about things that were difficult to talk about you know and and getting you know really talking about who she was and her name
1: is liliana belasquez that's the second book of immigrant stories i did and we met 45 times over a year and a half almost every week Uh,
2: she wanted to write it but she was barely literate. She had taught herself to write a little bit, reading the Bible. She was pulled out of school in Guatemala when she was one year old. I mean, one in first grade to take care of her younger brothers. It was beaten mercifully, unmercifully by her parents and by a couple guys who tried to rape her in the community and all. When she was 14, she says, I'm out of here. She's this tiny woman, had never
1: seen a map, could barely read, only knew... That north was, she lived
2: on the border between Guatemala and Mexico. That north was across the river and headed off by herself. Traveled through Mexico, was robbed by narcos, did this amazing thing of being able to read people. She traveled off and on with all the people she traveled with. She'd meet men and she was figuring out on the way whether it was safe. And sometimes she would say, no, this is not safe. I'm not going with this guy. Ended up getting to the border, getting caught, being in detention, being shipped to Philadelphia to be in foster care while they were making a decision or case. And eventually ended up living with a remarkable foster care family. The second one, the first one really treated her awfully and abused her and getting permanent residence. She just got her citizenship and she's going to community college. She's amazing. So this is, and with Liliana, as I'd retired by then, again, a niche was schools. And so I spent a huge amount of time contacting schools and teachers here and universities and stuff like that. And she's given 95 presentations now to schools and sold 6,000 books. She gets, you know, she gets all this royalty, obviously.
0: Thank you so much for listening to part one with Mark Lyons. Stay tuned for part two. Thank you so much for listening to Where the White Coats Come Off. We are so happy to connect with you and share our passion of the PA profession. Don't forget to go to the show notes and join our super fun Pacers membership so you can start making your CASPA application more competitive today with virtual shadowing hours, coaching sessions with us, and so much more. Also in the show notes, we have a free download, an Excel PA school record keeper that mimics CASPA format. Meaning you keep all of your shadowing hours, patient care experiences, volunteer information, awards you have received, leadership roles, and the loads of other information you need to apply to PA school in one place. So you can copy paste into CASPA when you go to apply. Get it in the show notes. Have a great day and we will see you at the next episode. Keep up the awesome work.